Hello, salam, and welcome to another installment of the Ajam podcast. I'm Rustin, one of your hosts, and I'm here in Tbilisi with a guest co-host, uh, Jan. Would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, sure, I'm, I'm really uh, glad to be here. Uh, I'm a journalist, uh, analyst, and researcher working on uh, issues related to migration in the post-Soviet space. Yeah, and if, in case... Uh, you guys have been on uh, Facebook. Jan is also uh, the host of the Zamzaman podcast. Um, it's a music project that documents music from um, really kind of the Circumcaspian zone, right? So Russia, Caucasus, Central Asia. Yeah, with with, with a few deviations, but basically, yeah, that's that, that's that's what I, that's what I focus on. And every um, radio show has um, explores a specific region. Uh, or tries to connect different regions, different time periods, and it's a mix of contemporary music, but also old vinyls that I can find from the 70s and 80s. That's great. Um, so we're definitely going to have you back on the show when Kamyar gets back. Um, but, yeah, I wanted to make sure that we're both there for that to have you on, um, because you're also doing some really great work on uh, the techno scenes in Uzbekistan and in, and in Baku. You just recently did a project on both of those places. So we'll have you back on to talk about that. But tonight... We're going to talk to Mariana Irby, um, who is a PhD student in anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, her research focuses on nationalism, gender, and post-socialism in Tajikistan and Tajik migrant communities in Russia. Um, and in case you haven't uh, read the article, um, a couple of weeks ago she wrote an article for us on Ajam called Dressing the Nation, Tajikistan's uh, hijab ban and the politics of fashion in post-Soviet Central Asia. So we'll be talking to her a little bit about this, but also kind of going into um, more general discussions about uh, migrant labor to Russia and also um, national identity in Tajikistan. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Mariana. Hello. Thank you so much. Thank you again for having me. It's such a pleasure. We're excited to have you. Yeah, so I don't know if the listeners have taken the time to read your article, but um, I, I loved it. You know, I spent some time in Tajikistan myself, so I've kind of seen some of these uh, practices of trying to find a um, articulation of national identity through clothing, through public displays of you know dress and appearance. Mm -hmm. So uh, your article is about the idea of pushing for this national dress or le basemeli. Can you just explain a little bit about uh, what that is and kind of what, why this happened? Yeah, absolutely. So in the past couple of years, there's been several different sets of legislation that have been enacted in, in Tajikistan, both you know, in the capital of Dushanbe, um, so at state and also like local levels, banning or restricting so-called Islamic or foreign, you know, often called Islami or Khariji, interchangeably sometimes. So basically, anything that is perceived to be a, a burqa, a hijab, you know, something quote-unquote Muslim-looking, and uh, for banning full head coverings as well in certain workplace environments, educational environments. But many of these laws also specifically have encouraged women to wear national dress. Um, and recently, the president of Tajikistan, Nemamali Rahman, has also come forth stressing the importance of women in national dress. The government recently issued a guidebook featuring... Uh, examples of recommended outfits. All the media coverage that I'd been looking at kind of paints this as a picture of uh, fighting Islamic radicalism, which is a, a, a concern for many of the post-Soviet states in Central Asia. A concern, I, you know, I believe, primarily tied to you know, authoritarian control. 
and paired with, you know, also very real um, uh, insecurities about the post-socialist transition. I'm trying to figure out what is specific about Tajikistan in particular. Like, so, of course, um, it shares a border with Afghanistan, and there has been this anxiety since 2001 and the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, but... Um, also, uh, Tajikistan had a civil war, right? Yes. In the 19, was it 1993 to 1994? Yes, absolutely. Can you explain a little bit about uh, maybe why this has to do with some insecurities about uh, Islamic displays? Absolutely. I think that that's also part of the picture that, you know, uh, Tajikistan had, you know, not that it's a contest, but arguably one of the most difficult transitions, uh, you know, was thrust into a five-year civil war soon after the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and so this issue of, of unity, of Vahdati uh, Mili, is, is huge. I, I, you know, actually, I remember when I learned the word unity, Vahdat, and I saw it everywhere. After that, I saw it everywhere in Tajikistan. I didn't know how. I possibly didn't know this word before. It's, uh, so the, the question of a united nation, because uh, during the Civil War, there were, you know, were several political entities competing for, for power after the collapse. Um, but this prompted some, some big regional divides and... Uh, so the issue of, you know, a united nation is, is very much at the forefront of, like, national discourse, right? And, and the pa- I mean, the pain of the Civil War is something that most people obviously remember and um, are, you know, they're rightfully uh, concerned about, about these uh, issues of, of stability and unity. Um, I'm, I, I'm just wondering, because um, I, reading the article, um, a thought kind of came across my mind how... Um, how other minorities in Tajikistan um, perceive this, and do they try to sort of conform to this national dress? I mean, just the you know the Uzbeks kind of come to mind, and I know that I mean there are a lot of similarities. But but um, f- for Uzbeks living within Tajikistan, what's sort of the the, the trend there? Um, so to to talk about Uzbekness and Tajikness, it's in today. You know, it's uh, the lines between the two are, are not very clear. Yeah, and I mean, like, um, I think that that's one of the interesting things is that we're trying to, the state of Tajikistan is trying to find a uh, Tajik identity, which is, I mean, this was a project, as you mentioned, that has been going on since national delimitation, right? Like, what is Tajikness? What is Uzbekness? But one of the things that I find interesting is that uh, in your article, you're talking about Lebasa uh, Meli national dress for women. And, you know, one of the things that is so common in Tajikistan and Uzbekistan are, you know, these very uh, floral and multicolored um, patterns, right? So um, is there a difference, like, is there a difference between Uzbek and Tajik uh, fabrics and prints? Like, and if so, like, how is that articulated in this uh, national dress? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so I think like a lot of the material culture and heritage between Tajiks and Uzbeks is shared, right? Because ideas of separate national identities are quite recent. So I know that, for example, there's a print called Atlas, which is kind of st- st- uh, like stripey shapes, sort of brightly colored. Um, and this, you know, is a feature of national dress, both in Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, but more associated with the north of Tajikistan, where there's more Uzbek speakers, and it's more towards the center of this spectrum, I guess. I've heard that today Atlas is becoming a little less popular than, than prints from the south of Tajikistan, which are kind of like big flowers and red, because the southern identity is seen as like further from Uzbekistan and therefore like more authentically Tajik or something like that. 
which and, and again this is like strange because the parts of Uzbekistan that are near Tajikistan are m- many of them still primarily Tajik speaking so like the fabrics that they wear there are like also it, you know what I mean that these these lines of, of who, who has what authority or what claims over a different material culture are what causes a certain amount of um, interpretations of the past, which can be like, you know, very, very rooted in the present and like d- debates over contemporary parameters of national identity. I have, a, I have a really practical sort of material question, actually. I was just wondering because, I, you know, I've seen um, just in a lot of markets in Central Asia, when I was in Kyrgyzstan and in other places, they're flooded with a lot of like cheap materials from China or from Turkey. Yeah, absolutely. And is that the case also um, in Tajikistan? And if so, are these materials like kind of refashioned uh, or or are they still a lot of them locally produced or how does that affect it? Because I find it interesting where, when people try to maintain the national dress, but at the same time, these cheaper materials are affordable and therefore it becomes kind of a blend. Um, so I was wondering what your experience with that was. You know, since the 1990s, the you know, the end of the Soviet Union and the, the emergence of, of commodities from uh, different parts of the world uh, being available in, in Tajikistan has made a big difference. So many of the fabrics, if you go to bazaars to, you know, and this is how most women have these clothing either made for them or make them, you know, buying fabric in a bazaar and then sewing them. Um, many of the fabrics, maybe even most, are, are, are manufactured in, in China, uh, in Turkey, the Turkish fabrics are supposedly of better quality, people often tell me. Uh, but yeah, and often feature prints that are not Tajik at all. You know, leopard print, sparkles, for example, leopard print is really popular. So the national character, the mili, often has more to do with, you know, the, the cut or the, the circumstances under which the, the clothing are worn than the actual uh, materials. Because I've thought about this quite a bit, that oftentimes the fabrics are, are not Tajik and not, don't feature Tajik prints necessarily but are still questionably national in character. Uh, you discuss in the article that this articulation of nationhood is falling on the shoulders of women, quite literally, through what they're wearing. And this is mostly due to the role of gender relations in uh, migration. And can you explain a little bit what you mean by this? Like, Why, or why are women's bodies being a place of national articulation? I, so this is a trend that really, in, in some ways, this, this feminization of the national is a trend that you can see around the world. I mean, you know, in India as well, um, it's much more common in, in many places for women to wear clothing deemed national uh, in, instead of men, right? And I think some of this has to do, you know, and this was also true in like earlier nationalist projects, you know, a century, a century and a half ago, uh, where I guess, you know, because of women's connection to the family and tradition and, you know, those grounding, anchoring images and practices were more tied to women. But in contemporary Tajikistan, what I really see happening is, you know, in the past 20 years, there have been extremely high rates of outbound labor migration, uh, mostly to Russia. And in fact, Tajikistan is and and has been for quite some time one of the most remittance-dependent countries in the world, meaning a very high percentage of its GDP comes from wages sent back from Russia. And so in many places, if you go to villages in Tajikistan, for example, there's really just not a lot of working age men. You see often older people, women, uh, children. And then also, and increasingly, women are starting to migrate as well. But these trends of male migration have been, you know, have existed for, for decades now, for, for most of Tajikistan's post-Soviet existence. 
Um, and much of this migration is seasonal, you know, people who go and work on construction sites in Russia and then come back. But it's really embedded in like the contemporary culture of the country. You know, the, the man goes and works in Russia and sends home money and um, Russian money paying for Tajik weddings is like a, practically a, a trope at this point. And, and what I've observed, in, and I, I've lived with a Tajik family and you know, a third of my family was working in Russia at the time that the experience of being a migrant labor is kind of a definitive, it's kind of like a, a crucial element of contemporary Tajik masculinity, right? You know, you go and provide for your family, you go work in Russia um, and come back. And, and I, I really think that this does, you know, create a situation in where, which women, as you said, you know, bear the burdens of um, reviving and expressing uh, Tajikness, right? Because for many men who travel to work in Russia, they face a not so favorable environment in terms of, you know, downplaying your uh, your otherness uh, is important survival <laughs> strategy or, or strategy to avoid deportation and uh, be able to to be able to work right. So w- oftentimes, women and men, you know, they inhabit such such different um, sets of circumstances. I'm actually really happy that Jan has joined us today because yeah, I was checking out your Twitter. It's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, Jan is also, he, he does a lot of work on um, migrant issues in, in Russia, so, uh, primarily from Central Asian communities. But yeah, I just want to, um, maybe, uh, Jan, could you give a little background as to what exactly are the conditions of Tajik migrant workers in Russia? I know that like you cover this a lot, so maybe just uh, for our listeners talking about why, why do they have to downplay their identity and what are some of the economic conditions they have to deal with? I mean, they're basically faced with a very draconian migration enforcement uh, system that's in place in in Russia, uh, which makes it very difficult to have a quote-unquote legal uh, status that has any kind of permanence. So, I mean, I I don't want to go too much into the details, but basically um, there are several, you know, when when you basically, when you arrive in Russia, you have a very short time period to register yourself and you can't actually register yourself on your own, but your landlord has to do this in person. It's a very complicated procedure. So um, as a result, a lot of people end up sort of falling through the cracks or they have some of the documents, but they don't have all of them. And, uh, and so as a result, you're kind of in a permanent gray zone, uh, which makes you vulnerable to, to potentially uh, deportation because the laws are, are, are very strict. You can you know, end up being checked by police and racial profiling is the norm. Um, in a lot of the the major cities in Russia, you can very quickly end up being deported and get a a, a five or ten year ban, which would be uh, horrible for for your family back home. So that's kind of the system that they're facing. So you have to be very careful in the way that you navigate the city, um, particularly if you take public transport. You have to be really attentive. And so on the one hand, um, it's sort of an, an an interesting situation of you know in, in Moscow, or Saint Petersburg, labor migrants are at once both. Uh, they're they're you know they're omnipresent they're everywhere and at the same time they're kind of in the shadows so you know and it puts a lot of pressure uh, on the, on these people as well what i'm sort of curious about i mean while we were discussing this issue i was thinking of how things are starting to change because as and you mentioned this um that there are increasingly more women migrating to russia it's not just men and I wonder, I mean, I haven't done work on this myself, but um, uh, to what extent they also try to downplay, you know, their quote-unquote ethnic appearance or so on. So this summer I was in St. Petersburg as well, and um, 
and I, I didn't even originally plan to talk specifically with female migrants, but it just ended up being, you know, what I, what I ended up having access to, the people who were most interested in talking to me. Uh, and this is one of the questions that I, I still will take years for me to really uh, think I have an answer to, but how, how women cope with um, these legal gray areas differently than men and how, uh, how and why they, you know, the, the, how how gender uh, you know how gender plays into the into these issues, uh, because the thing is that I you know I have seen uh, Central Asian women who work in produkty um, like the, the I guess the Russian equivalent of a bodega. Often the people who work in these are are, are women from Central Asia in Saint Petersburg at least, and sometimes they do wear clothing that's visibly Central Asian, right? And so I I wonder whether whether it's true that women who have you know whether the docu- if their documents are in, in in order if this makes the feel, makes them feel more free to to express their identity as they wish or I, that's still kind of a mystery to me but uh, it it does seem also that many of the women who are um, uh, who migrate to Russia by themselves often are are divorcees uh, whose husbands you know left for Russia and never came back. And this is a very, a very difficult situation for women back in Tajikistan who, um, you know, either are divorced, divorced or abandoned and, and often can no longer re- remain in their in their kishlak in, in the village. As it's viewed very, un- that's a very unfavorable status. Um, so some of them just, you know, move to Russia. And so I, many of the migrant females I talk to, their, their independence and their, uh, their desire to, you know, leave their village in Tajikistan behind was something that they like really wanted to emphasize to me in their interviews and their uh, about how they're, you know, independent women, etc. No, no, but uh, I mean, this is very interesting. I was also wondering if they, you know, if their experiences of um, encountering uh, Russian authorities, whether police or, 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 or immigration control or otherwise, are different. Um, than those of men, because I mean, this is—I I have purely anecdotal evidence, but I, I have this feeling that that uh, potentially, you know, that I mean, because this is generally the case, I think, in Russia, is that you'd end up, you know, a lot of the police they end up targeting men. Right. I mean, even Russian men for document checks, and women, it's kind of, you know, you don't maybe don't want to ask uh, for a bribe directly into, you know, in, in someone's face. It's a bit like, you know, they're a bit uncomfortable with it. But I don't know if you have any, uh, if you have any insight into that. Yes, I definitely got the impression that many, that these female migrants who are not proper, you know, fully documented, that they, um, that's, that's a concern, obviously. And, and especially with it, those, for those who have children as well, you know, be, having proper documentation is necessary even to put children in school and um, to access things like healthcare. I mean, it's really complicated how people have to navigate those situations. Um, but uh, it, it, I, it, it may be true that, that uh, because the established ways of policing migration, uh, which can you know, have some performative aspects to them, you know, these images of uh, uh, Russian migration officers bursting down doors and, and rounding up the illegals and deporting them. Um, it, it, it's possible that women kind of, because they're, they're sort of thought of as a, as a side phenomenon yeah, to like the central like idea of like what a central uh, male central Asian construction worker looks like, or um, that they kind of manage to slip through the cracks a little bit more. Uh, again, I also have mostly anecdotal evidence here, 
yeah, I don't know if I told you, Mariana, but I spent maybe a year and a half, two years in, in St. Petersburg doing my field work. So um, when I heard you were talking about St. Petersburg, I just like immediately held my heart. And yeah, and Jan's from St. Petersburg. So we got a St. Petersburg family here. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. yeah it's true. <laughs> but um, <laughs> moving away from the Moscow centricity of a lot of the research on, uh, on labor migration. It really is very Moscow centric. Yeah. And the role of Sinai Pluchet, I think, is fascinating too. No, it is exactly. This is kind of what I was uh, trying to get at was, um, Jan, you probably, I, we talked about this before last year, where there were plans to build a prayer hall or a mosque in, you know, Sinai Rinek. And uh, there was this, you know, backlash that, like, you know, people on, you know, Sabaka and Bumaga and these, like, uh, you know, St. Petersburg local uh, newspapers were kind of covering this. And you just read the comments section or just um, there was people saying, like, oh, you see, like, the Islamification of St. Petersburg. Or, you know, like, oh, they count, this is the sixth mosque in St. Petersburg. And you actually had the, the mufti of St. Petersburg come out and say, like, no, no, this is not a mosque. This is just a prayer hall because... You know, we get, we, our workers have to go do prayer and they can't go all the way to um, the main mosque. It will take them too long. But, like, you know, it goes back to this idea that, like, who are going to be the ones that would conduct um, Islamic terrorist attacks in the minds of, you know, um, the security apparatus? It's like, oh, we've got to police these, you know, uh, these young overworked men uh, in, from migrant communities. And so that's, that's something that I saw a lot of. And, and, and this was, like, maybe a discussion that was going on for three or four years, but definitely was something that was prevalent when I was there as well. There's an anthropologist uh, in, in Moscow named Dmitry Aparin who's been doing really interesting work on Islamic practices in Moscow among migrants. And I think this kind of gets back to the complicated relationship between nationalism and sort of Islamic solidarity or whatever you want to call it. Because um, in his research, he showed that actually, and I was really surprised when I found this out, was that the the, the big mosque that they just built in Moscow, right, a few years ago, um, that they have a policy of not letting specifically Tajiks into the mosque. And I, uh, you know, it was a bit shocking to me when I heard about this, but basically the justification was it for, for, for it was that, um, you know, this is a mosque run by Tatars, and kind of the main people that uh, go there are from the Northern Caucasus. And they, well, one of the justification was, well, these people have different um, Islamic practices that we don't that we don't subscribe to. And this kind of nationalism in a way of like, you know, this is not for you. And so a lot of, as a result, a lot of the uh, Tajik uh, migrants, they went to prayer halls that were sort of on the outskirts. And he was saying that this was used then as an argument. Oh, it's radicalization. People are praying uh, sort of in these illegal places and that are hidden, but the reality of it is, you know, they didn't really have a choice, and they're not, you know, they're not they're not hiding from anything. Um, they just weren't let, let into these official places of worship. Right, and I think here is is where Russia is, you know, such an interesting country to look at, you know, migration from these trends because Russia, its relationship to Islam is in many ways historically, you know, quite quite different than many of Western European countries, for example, you know, Tatars and Volga Euro Muslims have such a long history with, you know, living among Russians and like Russian engagement with Islam and uh, proximity to it is definitely not anything new. So I think this does prompt a lot of really interesting questions about like, what type of Islam is, you know, quote unquote, acceptable and, you know, who has, who has authority, who has control over, you know, right to space to worship and right to Russianness as well, right? Because even these issues about race and racial profiling are super complicated because many Russians are, are not, you know, white, quote unquote. Right. I think the 
the most exemplary category is like Ruskian, Russian, right? So like uh, a Russian national and like an ethnic Russian and this being the major division. Sure, sure, sure. And it, yeah, and I find myself, uh, I wish there was a clearer distinction between that and in English. Right, but there's, I've heard through other people's research that sometimes, you know, some Kyrgyz migrants will like pretend to be Korean or something like that because that's like a more tolerated, I think Madeline Reeves, an anthropologist, she mentioned you know, in one of her works, like an informant who calls herself Svitlana Kim by day, even though she's from Kyrgyzstan because that's a more like acceptable, <laughs> not, you know, Asian looking person. I kind of want to steer the conversation back to Tajikistan. What happens when these migrants come home? Like, what does it look like? Or what, what happens? But also... How does this anti-Islam public displays of Islam, how does it affect, let's say, like uh, mosque admission, but also like, you know, what, what men can wear? It's funny because as an anthropologist, you kind of, if you work in you know, any type of, among any type of marginalized population, you have this task of both like obviously wanting to explore the, the, the challenges and the injustices that people face, but then also highlighting their agency, right? And, and I've noticed in my time in Tajikistan that often when I, when I do talk to return migrants, or, or migrants who are currently in Tajikistan planning to go back. Often, and I think there's like some performativity here, of course, but often they talk about their experience in Russia on, on very positive terms of, uh, you know, yes, like I went, you know, I worked in, in this place, you know, I was in the Far East or I was in Moscow, et cetera, showing me pictures, you know, and I paid for this, that, and the other thing here back home. Um, and kind of talk about their experience in Russia almost, almost the way, you know, in the Soviet Union, people would talk about military service of, you know, going somewhere else and, uh, you know, having that camaraderie with your, uh, other young men. So this is something I've, I've noticed quite a bit. And, and, I, and I think it also goes back to these, like, um, contemporary kind of gendered ways of uh, performing tajik, contemporary tajik masculinity, which is, like, very tied to these experiences of um, having worked, in, you know, on a construction site, for example, and, um, having had those adventures, right? Because, you know, for a person coming from a small village in Tajikistan, or, or even coming from, from Dushanbe, you know, going to Moscow, going to a big city is, has some exciting experiences. Uh, so that's something that comes up quite a bit. And then with remarks to religiosity, I've spent a lot less time in, in mosques than I have in, um, in people's homes. But it, it, it seems to me that this idea of, you know, radicalization, that Central Asian migrants are going to Russia and coming back and bringing back these radical uh, ways of practicing Islam, I think that's more um, the anxiety that this idea provokes is disproportionate to how often that, that actually happens. I mean, I mean, not that there's like you know a definitive checklist of like are you radical or you're not or anything like that, of course. But like it, it doesn't. I'm skeptical about about you know these ideas of um, about policing mosques and policing you know migrants. You know, obviously, I don't think it's fully justified, but I often think I think there's other processes at play. And, and, and as you mentioned before, you know, the uh, restrictions on beers, on children, boys entering in, entering mosques. You know, I think this is in part tied to attempts to, to silence political opposition of any form. These are measures that the government of Tajikistan puts forth to, to show that they're trying to, to enact progress somehow, even when there's so much... Um, corruption and you know so much you know egregious misuse of resources and so much oppression really i think the idea of like a strong state that like cracks down on, on islam or you know we're not going to go back into civil war we're not going to become afghanistan and you know it resonates with with people and I, i'm not so sure that radicalization is as common as it as they make it out to be uh, while doing your research in Tajikistan, if you noticed any resentment among people about 
like kind of the enforcement of uh, this national dress? Because you briefly mentioned uh, one of your respondents who was sort of, you know, wanted to dress um, in a more, I don't know, quote-unquote Western style. Or maybe people want to dress in a more, uh, you know, because I know there's the influence of also how people dress in Turkey, um, this sort of modern Islamic, I don't know how to, how to, how to categorize it. So, are, are, you know, are young people... Uh, maybe in particular a bit resentful about it or like if, if you had any interesting responses about that yeah and I, I think this obviously does play out differently and so in different like strata of the population right so the more i, I spend a lot of time in Dushanbe and you know more russophone often more more educated more quote unquote worldly or internationally minded people i think have yes get a lot of their style inspiration from quote unquote the, the west or um from yeah, Turkish soap operas and, and things like that, and but this is something that I've heard a lot from from female informants that uh, there's a lot of pressure to look to look Tajik, I guess whatever that whatever that means to people in the moment. Uh, but yes, that you know my my relatives you know will um, speak badly of me or you know look down on me if I you know wear jeans instead of my kurta and my shalwar, and I. I found that, you know, whenever people bring up these laws about restricting hijabs, restricting, you know, Muslim uh, attire, that often the anxieties that come up in these conversations are are precisely about, you know, the instability of having, you know, this uh, this economic situation where men have to leave, uh, concerns about political and economic stability. We can't have what we had before with civil war or whatever. So your question about whether there's resentment I don't know. I think some of these laws like really resonate with some people and like give them give them the idea that the, the government's really trying to make a difference and like improve our society. But then on the other hand, there's people who have a lot of concerns about freedom of expression and whether the government has the right to impose such authoritarian measures. Yeah, it's it's a complicated <laughs> complicated question because I find that many women also like really like wearing libasimili and like the personalization of going to the bazaars and picking out fabrics and having them sewn by, by a buzanda um, and find that as like a, a, a channel for expression. Mariana, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure to have you. Jan, uh, thank you for co-hosting today from Tbilisi. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. So I don't know if you've been listening to some of our podcasts, but usually Kamiar plays us out with some music. And I know that you host Zamzaman. Do you think you can play us out with some music today? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can, uh, I can get some things lined up real quick. <laughs> Great. Awesome. So um, we'll have uh, Jan play us out with a track. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, as always, feel free to message us on Facebook or Twitter, and we'll have a conversation there. Until next time.
Dil ra bo bin, dil ra bo bin, dar koi. 